0: Okay.
1: guys I got my good friend Dr. J Hazelcorn here. We have a he's a transplant pharmacist and we have a super interesting episode for you.
0: Donate your organs.
1: (laughs) It's good. (laughs) Yo, you know what's funny is how serious his face was. Oh my god. I'm saving this video. All right, so let's get into the show. I am super excited to have a good friend here, Dr. Jay Hazelcorn, and we're going to talk about transplant pharmacy.
0: Well, I first I want to just thank you for having me on the show. Yes. I really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, it's always a good thing to get the word out as far as transplant, transplant and then uh, what the benefits are of transplantation mm-hmm. and uh, how pharmacy can get involved and help these patients. This
1: I am so excited for this episode because I have so many questions because I have no idea about transplant pharmacy, so it's going to be excellent. And, uh, but before we really get into it, I want you to start by letting the listeners know, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: So my name is Jay Hazelcorn. I'm from South Florida. I started uh, uh, to get interested in pharmacy in undergrad and ended up going to the University of Florida College of Pharmacy where I met this guy named Richard Waite and... <laughs> He invited me onto his podcast, <laughs> but uh, afterwards I, I went on and did a, a PGY1, so a, a postgraduate year residency training at Broward Health Medical Center, where they did liver transplantation there. So I was exposed to that. Cool. Uh, and from there, I just kind of fell in love with transplant. You know, you, you see these patients come in for end stage liver disease. They're very sick. Uh, their jaundice, they have a lot of complications with their end-stage liver disease, and and you're trying to help manage that. Mm. And then afterwards, you see them get transplanted, and they go through this you know, acute care situation where they're in the ICU for a little bit. Uh, liver transplant patients tend to get uh, infected or could have complications. But if everything's smooth, you know, those are the the good ones, right? You get yeah. to see them. Uh, their color comes right back. The jaundice yeah, yeah. goes away. Interesting. Uh, they go from one medication regimen to a completely different medication regimen that requires a lot of uh, medication counseling and education. And then you get to see them and follow up with them in clinic. So you see somebody knocking on death's door to somebody walking around and ambulating and contributing to society and having a good you know quality of life. Yeah, so yeah, it's really rewarding.
1: That's that's crazy. Before we get into like the details though, I I'm really curious to know because I know I knew you in pharmacy school mm-hmm. and I don't think I've ever heard you mention transplant in pharmacy school. Right. Did you always want to do this? How did this start? Like, how did you get into this field or or when did that decision happen?
0: So, no, I I had no interest in transplant prior to my Mm PGY-1 at Broward Health Medical Center. So it was actually a required longitudinal rotation where you would spend time in the, the liver transplant clinic and then you would get to follow these patients from the end-stage liver disease part to getting a transplant and then following up with them after their transplant in clinic. So yeah. you see them uh, in an ambulatory fashion, end-stage liver disease, uh, receive their transplant. You follow them throughout their hospital stay, providing a lot of education uh, for the patient, and you also round with the team too. So you're a part of a, uh, an interdisciplinary team mm-hmm. that takes care of these patients And then once they get discharged, we follow up with them in clinic as well. So I really kind of fell in love with that part of being part of that team and being a service to these patients. Uh, So which made me pursue a second year, postgraduate year two in solid organ transplant, where I did that at CHI St. Luke's, Baylor St. Luke's in Houston, Texas. So
1: how was so let's talk about the the first on Let me just move this a little bit further since this is your natural space spot right here. There we go. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what your what your PGY1 was like. Um, And then, you know, we'll try to compare it later. But what was what was your PGY1 like?
0: So my PGY-1 was a, a good experience. It was at a, a tertiary teaching hospital. So it had a medical uh, residency. So it had a graduate medical education department and it gave us an opportunity to be a part of um, the learning environment of those medical residents. So we got to participate in their grand rounds where they would present interesting cases, interesting patients. And we would talk about the differential diagnosis, uh, possible treatments, et cetera. Uh, And then it was also a a level one trauma hospital. So I think that's a a good point when you're trying to uh, pick a PGY-1 and you're not quite 100 percent sold on exactly what you want to do or where you want to end up or specialize in. uh, Pick a hospital that's going to offer an array of services that you can really benefit from.
1: That's a good tip. And going into so what even made you. What have you made you do a PGY-2? Is that something that, like, I, I'm actually curious to know, like, how are people deciding now? You know, all right, you did a PGY-1. Now, sh- do you have to do a PGY-2? Is it a good idea? H- how is that? How was that decision-making process for
0: you? Yeah, so you don't have to do a PGY-2. Uh, it's not mandatory. However, it's uh, strongly encouraged, and a lot of the centers are looking for either PGY-2 trained, uh, if we're talking about transplant, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. specifically in transplant, they're looking for either PGY two trained or pharmacists with with experience, maybe like three to five years yeah. of experience with taking care of transplant patients.
1: So you have a disproportionate advantage if you have a PGY two if you want to do transplant.
0: Correct, but you know you have to kind of fall in love with it. Yeah, you yeah. know it's not it's <laughs> not for everybody. Yeah, uh, it, it's something that I have a passion for. I really enjoy. Uh, Like I said, a a really, you know, it's really rewarding to build a relationship with a patient, to see them uh, with some sort of end stage disease, whether it's end stage kidney disease, liver disease, heart disease, or even lung disease. Right. Yeah. And to see these patients um, to help manage them throughout that that transition period until they get a transplant and then help them with their new regimen, their new medications, uh, post-transplant, and to see that change from them going over to an end-stage, you know, heart disease or liver disease or kidney disease to now, you know, a functional kidney or a functional heart, it's rewarding for them because it improves their quality of life uh, and, you know, morbidity and mortality.
1: And what was the differences between your PGY-1 and PGY-2? Like, how were those experiences different?
0: So PGY-1 is a general overall experience. So you get a little taste of everything. So we had our longitudinal experience where the center I came from just did liver transplant. So they didn't do any other organ. It was just liver. Uh, Whereas, and and then you rotate through, like, you know, you have your critical care, your internal medicine, your administration. Uh, So they're trying to give you a good general overall exposure. Whereas your PGY-2, it's focused. Okay, Uh, where I did my second year residency is a big transplant center. It's at the um, it's part of the Texas Medical Center, uh, which is like one of the largest medical centers in the world. And it's just a sight to see out there. If you ever go out to Houston, go to the Texas Medical Center. So the center I was at, they did heart, lung, kidney And liver transplantation. So we would actually just spend the whole year rotating through all of those different organs and disciplines and working with those teams.
1: That's pretty cool. And now I I really want to know, I know what I do when I get to work. Like I know what my day-to-day is like. I'm sure most people know what the regular rounds are like at like a staff pharmacist or whatever, but what, what is the day in the life of a transplant pharmacist? Like you get to work, Mm
0: -hmm. like what happens
1: like seven o'clock, nine o'clock,
0: what happens? So nine o'clock you're sleeping in because you probably have already missed rounds. Okay. Um, (laughs) All right. Good (laughs) to know. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it depends on what discipline you are and what team you're, 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 you're a part of is going to kind of dictate the volume and your services. Uh, So for example, the, um, the high volume organ would be kidney. Uh, there's potential for a living related donor. Uh, so there's more opportunities for donation. Uh, and then when there's a, a donor that passed away, there's two kidneys that will go to two different patients. So they always tend to have higher volumes of actually transplantation. Gotcha. So if you're part of a, a kidney transplant service, uh, some of the roles and responsibilities would be is to, uh, you know, round daily multidisciplinary rounds with the uh, f- transplant nephrologists and transplant surgeons, and ensuring that the patients are on the appropriate. Uh, induction medication, so which is their anti-rejection or immunosuppressive medications, uh, making sure that uh, we're not experiencing toxicities and we need to dose adjust based off of leukopenia and thrombocytopenia, so low white blood cell counts and low platelets, uh, and then also managing for uh, opportunistic infection prophylaxis and making sure that those medications are dosed appropriately and uh, the patient is tolerating them as well. Yeah. So there's this fine balance, right, between uh, rejection and infection and malignancy. Because at the time of transplant, we have to suppress the immune system to prevent rejection. And on the flip side, the immune system does a lot of good things, such as preventing infection and malignancies. Those are the two things that we try to balance. Uh, And we have to determine the risk of rejection based off the patient, the organ that we're transplanting, and, uh, the immunogenicity, uh, overall immunogenicity of the yeah. patient too.
1: Now, when I, when I was on rotations and I was doing rounds, uh, the pharmacist had a, you know, obviously had a major role usually, but it was more of supportive, I would say. Mm-hmm. Would you say, how was that, how was the role of the pharmacist on the transplant team, uh, at, at either generally or, or in your, in your situations of, of where you're working?
0: So, Each center will probably be a little bit different, right? So you have um, CMS and uh, the Organ Procurement Transplant Network, which kind of has mandates or guidelines for the the pharmacist involvement on the, the multidisciplinary team. And then each center will write their policies to dictate or kind of outline the role and responsibility of of each team member. So there's where you would come up with your daily day-to-day activities. Rounding was just one facet or aspect of the uh, transplant team. You know, you still have to be a part of the pre-transplant evaluation, where you actually get to meet these patients, teach them about the medications that they would possibly take post-transplant, answer any questions for them, and then also what I do is I provide a, a medication adherence assessment to see uh, how likely they would be adherent to medications after transplant because if they don't take their medications they're likely to go into rejection and possibly have that organ not work and that actually goes back on the center so centers are graded mm. based off of how likely or how well their their, their outcomes are so you know high-risk patients for non-adherence or, you know, other things that we'd like to look out for is key drug-drug interactions, pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic drug interactions that we would have to manage post-transplantation. Um, and then just like, you know, anticoagulation, things related yeah. to surgery and stuff like that.
1: So, how, so it's interesting, but how much, I, what really stuck out to me there was like the adherence uh, situation. How much contact do you have to have with a patient after? A transplant to make sure that that is that that is a, uh, a, an, a, an ability to to monitor those adherence issues like how, how often does that have to have to happen?
0: So uh, while the patient's admitted in the hospital and we're rounding with them daily, we're always stopping by and going over the medications with the patient. The first couple of days or the first day the patient might be a little loopy a little bit out of it they get a, a big whopping dose of corticosteroids and it kind of you know makes them a little out of it one time. I had a patient uh, that actually got a heart transplant, and he came out and he was asking everything in Spanish. Por favor, <laughs> you know, Dami. <laughs> nice. And yeah. uh, I asked him later, and he, he says he doesn't speak Spanish. So, um, wow. so he was a little out, out of it. So, but as they you know progress, uh, the next day or two. Uh, kidneys are a short turnaround time. You can be discharged from the hospital post-op day four or five. Uh, so you really need to make sure that we're educating these patients about the importance of taking the medications, what the pills are, look like, what the names are, how we need to take them, and the consistency and the importance of taking the medications. Otherwise, we, uh, we're we looking at a situation of non-adherence, rejection, and then once the immune system starts to reject the organ, it's very hard to stop yeah.
1: So what what is like a what's a pain point, I I would say, because, I mean, you you did mention a lot of things that obviously that has to be looked out for as a pharmacist and clinically. Uh, Is there any pain point that really sticks out to you that that you really try to have to focus on in transplant? Or is it just kind of a balance of all those things that you just spoke about? Define pain point. Not familiar with that term. Well, like like what makes your job hard?
0: What makes my job hard? Well, Or, or like what's what hinders it from you being able to do it better? Um so there's you know always going to be limitations of how much you can do and how far you want to stretch yourself mm-hmm. uh with your job because you can take on too much and be overwhelmed and not really provide that personalized care that we all we all strive for mm-hmm. so i think trying to find a balance is important in your career uh, as a PGY2 uh, resident at a high volume center, I felt like I had no time to do anything. Uh, but as you're, you know, the center I'm at now at Memorial Transplant Institute, you know, in Hollywood, Florida, where we just got started, it's just starting a program and mm-hmm. it's being on the ground floor and being a part of uh, building the 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 program from from the beginning is going to help uh, guide my involvement with patient care, rounding, uh, and the evaluation process.
1: Yeah, cool. So, in transplant, you guys don't have—you guys don't have transplants every day, right? It's not like you have a patient every day that you know is coming in, like all right, need a new kidney. Like that's not how it works, right? What What happens on your downtime? Like, because I'm assuming there's a lot of downtime in being a transplant pharmacist. So, what's the downtime like?
0: So. There, there really isn't a lot of downtime, especially at a high-volume center. Uh, you know, you are really busy. So, for example, uh, for the pre-transplant evaluation, you can have um, a, a ton of referrals, and these patients come in, and they all need to go through the education process. Mm. So they'll receive education from our coordinators, Uh, about our program, about transplantation, uh, about the process, and then also the pharmacist myself comes in and we teach them uh, a medication section. Mm -hmm. And then we actually interview the patient too. So we'll interview each patient and we'll actually do the medication assessment adherence, screen for those drug-drug interactions um, or any contraindications from a pharmacy perspective uh, or red flags that you would think. And then we actually present each of those patients to a committee. So we'll have to, we're a part of that selection committee too. Mm-hmm. Where we'll, the pharmacist, The pharmacists. Yeah. Where we'll weigh in and all the different disciplines so mm-hmm. will actually... Uh, you know, provide an evaluation or a recommendation for this patient's eligibility for a listing. Yeah. And
1: what, what kind of strikes out to me is I'm a little curious because sometimes I think about like the economics of like who's paying for certain things, stuff like that, which um, I don't know if this is a question that you can answer like for me, but is there a lot of money wasted in that type of education in terms of you know, having to have you being paid to educate them at the hospital mm-hmm. um, when maybe something else could be happening or you could be staffing or whatever the case may be? Like, is, is, that, like a, is that like a concern for, for the department? Do you,
0: um- So anytime that a new department or new program starts, there, there has to be an investment. And we're actually not receiving funds from CMS until we actually probably do three transplants. We invite CMS out, and then CMS could certify our program, and then we'll start receiving reimbursements. Gotcha. And, you know, if you look at the cost of a care on on one patient on dialysis compared to the cost of a care of a one patient post-transplant, it's significantly less. I can't tell you the numbers, but I've Wait, looked sorry. it up before.
1: <laughs> what is what's less? Which one's less? The transplant recipient. So after So you transplant, save a lot of money if you transplant Right. So okay.
0: CMS actually encourage, uh, encourage that. Right. Will encourage and support and provide the funding, you know, or reimbursement for your transplant, the cost of it. Because in the long run, it's cheaper and it's more beneficial for the patient when it comes to uh, cardiovascular risk and mortality.
1: Okay. Is there any other, other than those two things, which obviously are super important, is there any, like what other benefits
0: are there for, you know, going,
1: doing a transplant versus being on dialysis?
0: So the benefits that we talked about as far as uh, healthcare, care, um, you know, and returning to uh, daily activity living, right? Okay. Uh, patients on dialysis uh, end up having to uh, receive dialysis three times a week. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of time out of their day. Uh, they end up uh, going on disability because of the uh, dialysis. Uh, they're at risk for even infection and cardiovascular disease. And... And uh, on top of that, they have to uh, follow a a very strict diet. They're always constantly taking phosphate binders. Um, So a lot of patients find it, you know, after transplant... More fulfilling, Uh, they feel better. There's not quality of life. Yeah, Yeah. they're not fluid overloaded, uh, you know, around their ankles anymore. Their taste buds come back. They can start to enjoy food again. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. Yeah, that's a crazy. You know, I think it's
0: the. I guess overall quality of
1: life is just generally better. What What do you love about it? Like, because there's things that I I know I love about what I do. Mm -hmm. What do you love about specifically being a transplant pharmacist?
0: I love. I love transplant in general, uh, and especially with pharmacy. There's just so much value that you can provide to the patient. Uh, These patients go from one medication regimen to a completely different medication regimen overnight. Yeah. Right? So that's scary. Yeah. uh, Because now they have all these different medications they have to take. And, you know, they, they heard it in the class, they might have heard it once or twice, we've told them, but now they actually have to do it. So we actually have to make sure that we're a good resource for that patient and their caregivers, uh, to make sure that they really understand how to take their medications and why they're taking it uh, is going to be important. So we, we make sure we have the medications delivered to the bedside. We fill out a pillbox with them we we provide them planners and educational material, and we're constantly you know asking them questions yeah so how
1: my question is like, how hard is it to be one because i when you hear about it, it sounds intimidating because it's such an it's such a crazy idea. you're putting right. an organ from someone else's body into someone else's body, you know like how hard because it seems like it's intimidating. So, how hard is it to actually be in practice as one? Would you say for you know, especially for students that are listening that are thinking about it? Maybe they feel like,
0: oh, I would never be able to do that or something. Like, how? What, what would you say? What would you say to that? I would say try to get some experience in it. it it's really rewarding uh, to to work in transplant. It, it is a, I guess you could say, intimidating because there's a, a lot to manage with these patients, and if everything goes great great but if everything go doesn't go great then you know there's a lot of management that can you know be done from a pharmacy standpoint from uh, an immunosuppression standpoint mm-hmm. uh, from adjusting medications to uh, to certain type of uh, infections such as uh, you know CMV or BK virus uh, these are all complications post op and then there's uh, a lot of new data that's always coming out in transplant. I mean, we're relatively a new field. So the ideal or optimal treatment for antibody-mediated rejection is not well-defined. So each center has different protocols. And trying to kind of dig through that information and find the best uh, way to treat your patients is a challenge, but also can be rewarding when you do it.
1: Did I did I ask you why you loved it? Did we answer that question? I think so. Oh, okay. But
0: you know, I, I really enjoy being part of a, a team, right? Okay. Because we work so closely with the same individuals day in and day out—the same surgeons, the same nephrologists, the same coordinators. You build this this trust and this relationship with these providers. Yeah. Um, and we all lean on each other for, for different information, uh, and to be a part of that team and to help a center grow and develop and and to know that you're doing it all for the same cause to help, you know, provide care for these patients is rewarding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think in other areas of pharmacy or other positions, you don't get that same team approach. Mm -hmm. You have a a prescription that comes across. It's from this one doctor that you may or may not know, Mm -hmm. and you're just evaluating it for appropriates. Whereas this, you're coming together with a plan, an overall plan for these patients, and then you're actually following through because you get to see the patients in clinic after the transplant, making sure that they don't have any problems, monitoring their labs and and values, uh, and then monitoring their medication adherence and how they're taking side effects.
1: Which is interesting because... Uh when I was when I was thinking about pharmacy and what I wanted to do with my career, my biggest thing was I wanted to build relationships with these people. And a lot of positions you don't and especially in a hospital, you don't get that ability. And this is actually sounds like it's a, a solid way to get that get that fix if you're looking to build relationships with patients and things yeah. like that. This sounds like it's a really actually a really good option
0: Absolutely. for a career path. You should become a transplant pharmacist. Hey, man, if you start <laughs> training me, let's go. Like <laughs> I'm ready.
1: Uh, speaking of, let's say I'm a student mm-hmm. and maybe even a pharmacist. We'll, let's talk more for students and then we could even talk about, let's say I was a pharmacist that really wanted to start actually going to transplant. But for students... How can they, if they're, if they're like, hmm, this sounds like a great thing for me, I want to try to see what I can do now because I'm a first or second year or whatever. What can they be doing now to either learn about it or start working their way towards going that route?
0: So I, I think they, the best option would be this to try to get a rotation or some sort of experience in a transplant center. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's just volunteering over the summertime, if they take students or if you want to shadow Uh, a pharmacist for a day uh, just to kind of see their their day-to-day routine or how involved they are with patient care uh, I think it would be a good idea just so you can kind of get a little tip of the iceberg yeah but in reality that iceberg runs deep yeah yeah Yeah.
1: Um, anything online that they could start like looking at or researching or like do you have any good resources for like a student to say like if they want to just start in general learning about it
0: yeah, so I mean, there's resources as far as for transplant, which is the American Society of Transplantation, and then they have the American Journal of Transplantation. Okay, uh,
1: part of I'll try to link that into the show notes so people, if they're interested, they can they can you know click through that.
0: And part of the American Society of Transplantation has a, a community of practice. And one of the communities is specifically for pharmacy uh, that has, you know, resources that, you know, we can utilize uh, as a transplant pharmacist. And they also have blogs, too, which is really interesting because you'll, you'll try to get different perspectives from different centers to see how they're managing their patients. Uh, so it's a community. Yeah,
1: that's really cool. And um, I'm a pharmacist mm-hmm. and I'm like, you just convinced me that I want to be a transplant pharmacist.
0: What do I do? How do I get there? So the thing about being a transplant pharmacist, you either have to kind of work your way in or go through the, the, the postgraduate year training. Gotcha. So I know of a, a pharmacist actually um, that went to our school and uh, she actually did a PGY-1 that at a center that had uh, transplants. Uh, so at that center they at the time she was graduating she, she got a, uh, had a really good rapport with the surgeons and the team mm-hmm. and the team asked her why don't you stay and, and work with us in our transplant center and so she kind of got the opportunity to be a transplant pharmacist mm-hmm. right after a PGY1 so I think it goes to show you that there's a, a, a good opportunity if you have a good rapport with the team mm-hmm. um, you know you can't You can't have uh, a a bad rapport with the team members and expect to give good quality care with a team approach because that's that's what it is. It's really a team approach. Mm -hmm. So I think building those relationships would be your first step if you're not going through a a PGY to route. First, getting involved into a hospital that offers those services and then building a rapport with the team and then trying to work your way in.
1: I have a third option. This is what I would do if because I think the PGY, obviously, the postgraduate would be amazing and ideal. Um, Some people wouldn't be able to afford that if they have bills, family, whatever, or maybe they don't have an in with a hospital. They're not working there yet. I would if I were someone listening to this and you're interested in doing this, I would immediately start a blog about transplant. Start writing about it, because that means in turn, you're going to learn about it Mm -hmm. and build a name around it and then show up to a hospital let them see how passionate you are about transplant, and you may or may not get a job. And 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 not, when I say get a job, I mean get a job at the hospital. Just as a, maybe it could mm-hmm. be staff or whatever, but it'd be at a hospital that you know that has a transplant, transplant center. Yeah. Get in just for that position. Mm-hmm. Continue your blog, build it up, whatever or however, whether it's a video blog, whether it's writing, whether it's a podcast, anything. Because you could be, we, you could start a, a podcast about only transplant. Right. And obviously, if you if you get credibility because you're already a transplant pharmacist, but I could start one. Like, who's to say I can't start one? Learn about it. Get into a hospital that has it. Mm -hmm. Show that hospital team how passionate you are, probably about transplant than anyone else. You have a shot at getting a job. So
0: it's it's a thought, and I I think it could... One man's opinion. (laughs) You could give it a try (laughs) to see if it works. You know, it's a little... It's a little bit more difficult, I think, just because of the fact you have to think how many transplant centers are there and how many jobs are available. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so just in South Florida, you have uh, Miami, uh, Jackson uh, Memorial, Broward, and Cleveland Clinic, and even Broward just does livers. Um, Jackson is the the transplant institute where you know they'll do pretty much cardiothoracic, heart, lung, abdominal, liver, kidneys, and then uh, small bowel. Mm-hmm. Um, but other centers, they don't they don't do all those organs, right? So the the need is limited based off of the availability. Supply and demand, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: The supply and demand. I, I definitely think that it's it would be an extremely uphill battle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But one, I'm a little tempted to try it. Should but be. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I hope someone is listening. And be like, yeah, I've been a pharmacist for five years now, but I'm going to try that. If that happens and you're listening to this, please call me so mm-hmm. I can call Jay and be like, look, we did it. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, but anyway, that would just be that's one man's opinion. Uh, what so we already talked about good resources. What's the best advice? This is we're going general here. I want to go, I want to get out of transplant, and just talk about being a general pharmacist. What's your best advice for the practicing pharmacist today?
0: So, I guess before we just go away from transplant, okay, I'm sorry, I, I mean, I have to talk <laughs> a little bit about it. Okay, all right, let's do it. so I just want to put out the fact that, um, the transplant. Transplantation is a great option for for patients with end-stage disease of kidney, of of liver, of heart, of lungs. Um, These patients are like 115,000 patients wait on a transplant list. Uh, The number of transplants have been pretty steady, around 30,000 some odd transplants a year. Uh, Every 10 minutes, one patient gets added to a list, and about every 20 or 30 minutes, uh, a patient on the list dies. So the, the need for awareness of organ donation is um, something that needs to be promoted. Okay. Uh, and some of the myths about organ donation need to be debunked too. Okay. Uh, and we could talk about that. The other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, transplantation is a gift, right? And this is the only gift that you can still give after death. So uh, for an individual, you know, you should really consider it. Uh, as far as organ donation and to, to think that you can affect up to eight lives with your organ donation, uh, save eight people. Yeah. And you can donate easierly uh, now with the internet. You can go on to your local organ donation and sign up to be an organ donor. Uh, you could do it with your license or you could just register online. And then this way it takes the, the thought of your family members out of it. Uh, cause you've made that decision of yeah. whether or not you wanted to donate yeah. and it's, it's a personal decision yeah. uh, and everyone has their, their rights to make it. Um, but it's something I think everybody should consider mm-hmm. cause it's going to help out a lot of individuals. If there's any way that I can help
1: in any way do that, uh, I would like to probably get some links and something that I can also put in the show notes in case anyone's interested. Uh, we'll, we'll put something together to blast out like sure. some debunks and things like that, that we can post on social okay. media and stuff. That'd but, be cool. There's
0: a lot of good, uh, myths about uh, donation on the United network for organ sharing where okay. they talk about, Oh, I have a, a medical condition, so I can't donate.
1: Yeah.
0: Not, oh, interesting. Not okay. true. Uh, you know, there's uh this hope act that was recently passed, uh, which allows um, HIV positive patients to donate to HIV positive oh, I recipients. Heard, that was a big thing. I heard
1: about that actually. Right, that was a really big thing.
0: So don't let any type of medical condition preclude you from donation. You could still register as a donor, and uh, at the time they will evaluate to see whether or not you're a, a good candidate. Yeah, I have a
1: question, and I don't know if this is like one of the myths, or or if this is um, something that that's an issue. Let's say I'm an I'm an organ donor. I'm an organ donor, mm-hmm. so I'm not like uh, I'm not against it or anything like that. I actually, would I appreciate it. you wearing green. That's uh,
0: nice, or color of organ donation. This was totally by accident. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I nailed it.
1: Um, I wanted to. I, I heard that I don't know if there's a situation where, let's say, I'm an organ donor, and uh, you know something happens, or someone else's organ donor, and put that on me. Someone else's mm-hmm. organ donor, something happens to them, and they end up in the hospital to mm-hmm. be able to give uh, an organ. And there's a situation because they're they're you know they're unfortunately going to pass away and they're ready to give a, an, an organ. Is there a situation where there's a bill for that patient's family?
0: Very good question. Because of that that process of getting that organ out to the to another person. Very good question. Uh, so that's one of the myths uh, that's actually listed on the United Network for Organ Sharing, and, okay. and it it's debunked at, to the fact that. When you go to the hospital, uh, one the, the the hospital is going to do everything they can do to save your life. Yeah, right. So once the they've exhausted all of their resources, and uh, a lot of our donations can either come from a traumatic injury to the brain, um, or it could come from say like a, a drug overdose or patients who have a, a cardio um, cardiovascular uh, heart attack or stroke, they lose oxygen to their brain. So a lot of it's brain-dead donors. So as soon as uh, you're pronounced brain-dead and the... Uh, the option is that you would like to donate your care transitions from the, the hospital, it, it, you get discharged, and then you get re under a different encounter that the organ procurement team is going to incur those charges. Gotcha.
1: That's yeah. that's an amazing insight.
0: So as soon as they say, that you, as soon as the family's wishes, or if it was your wishes to donate, um, and you they determine that, that organ donation is the route that we're we were heading down, then the uh, all the charges then get transitioned over to a, a, a third party, the Organ Procurement
1: Network. That is a super interesting. Thank you. I was super curious about. Uh, going off of that question that I had about, you know, if you ha- if you get charged uh, because you're being part of a transplant process, uh, being that you're the, the organ donor, but there might be a stipulation where you actually might like you actually might be an organ donor, pass away, and might not be able to donate your organ. What? How does that possible?
0: So the majority of organ donation is uh, patients who have uh, experienced brain death. Okay. Um and with that being said is that they went out to save your life whether it was Uh, You got into a bad car accident or you were found with a a drug overdose um, or you had a a stroke and you had lost uh, blood flow to the brain uh, and somebody tried to intervene and save you in that time frame. So uh, you still had a heartbeat or maybe you had to have CPR, uh, but then, you know, you had your heartbeat come back and you came back into the hospital uh, with, you know, being in in critical care, critical Mm -hmm. condition. And at that time, they're going to determine whether uh, or not you uh, have the chance to recover or officially they'll declare you brain dead. Yeah. Um, so if you actually passed away at the scene of a, an accident and you're an organ donor um, and your, your heart's not pumping, there's no blood perfusing any of those organs, that by the time they get you to the hospital and stabilize, and even if they can't get your heart to restart... Uh, there's just been too much time and too much damage to those organs. Remember, every time we take away the blood supply to these organs, uh, they start to they start to die too. And yeah. They start to fail. Okay. So the ischemic time or the time away from any type of blood flow uh, is going to be dependent on the organ, and it has to be very minimalized. Mm, so every organ has it's like okay, how
1: long has it been since mm-hmm. it's like been ischemic or whatever, and then it's right. really interesting.
0: So even at the time of donation, the 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 heart is probably the heart and the lungs. You want the lowest ischemic time. Meaning that uh, by the time they actually uh, take it from the donor and implant it into the patient, you want it less than four hours, Mm -hmm. you know, versus the kidneys. You can actually uh, keep the kidneys uh, in a bucket and ice for, you know, 24 hours. You can actually put it on a pump, perfuse it with blood. Uh, So the kidneys are very ischemic tolerant uh, versus some of the other organs. So... Is that, is that the
1: scenario where like there's times where certain organs are possibly transplanted like, like across state lines type of thing? Like you can transport, like is that possible? True. Like I'm in California and I need a kidney or something and we found one and it's like, but it's in Texas. I, like that can get to me at some point.
0: So the United Network for Organ Sharing works with the local OPOs, which is the organ procurement agencies. And what they do is they actually divide up the country in regions. Mm. So depending on what region you are, you would actually accept organs from your region. And, and that's how they would allocate to those centers based off of your region. Mm. The closer you are to the actual donor, the, the better.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: and in some situations that those local uh, centers would actually get preference because you don't want long ischemic times. Yeah.
1: Do people move? For those types of things,
0: yes, yeah,
1: like for like you know, so you can say, all right, region. I don't know the numbers or how it works, but let's say region three has like a really high wait list. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you would move away from that
0: to a different Um, center that has a a lower average waiting time. People do do that. Interesting.
1: Yeah, this is a crazy world you live in, bro. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, what is the what's the best way for people to reach you in case they're they're interested in talking more about this?
0: Email. Email. Yeah. What's I'll give name? you my email. <laughs> <laughs> my email is the letter J, hazelcorn. Hazel, like the color, corn like you eat at mhs.net.
1: Awesome. Which I'll obviously link into the show notes. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This this was amazing. I learned so much mm-hmm. about being a transplant pharmacist, and I hope the listeners did as well. Thank sure. you for joining.
0: Anytime, man. Awesome.
1: It's a good freaking episode. Yeah. You guys are going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are going to love this. Oh, my God. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in. I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I hope it was as insightful to you as it was to me. Please leave me a comment on Instagram or on iTunes. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Any feedback is going to be greatly appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, see you over the counter. <clears throat> hey, hey. Ayo, my timepiece, don't ever stop. Six sides, check them all, that's a lot to watch. Hardest time that I put in just to rock the thing. All my doubters,
0: Mona's cadence, that's a lot to sing. See, time's the only thing that's constant. Permissive.